A rolling rampage of gunfire left seven dead, including the shooter. Armor of Light is an attempt to talk differently about violence in America and an invitation to a conversation instead of a fight. The question on the table is really Christians and gun ownership and use. Jesus never advocated violence. We have replaced God with our guns as the protector. From WNAT in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart. Welcome to WNAT Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our programs. Our guest today grew up in a world where filmmaking was the family business. With one of the most famous last names in America, she has herself become a nonfiction filmmaker, much of whose work has been showcased by public media. A few years ago, her film on Liberian activist Lema Bowie, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, became the centerpiece of a multi-part series called Women, War, and Peace, co-produced with WNET for PBS. Her most recent project, Armor of Light, has been released in theaters and featured in many festivals and screenings around the country. It's now scheduled for broadcast nationally on PBS under the banner of the Independent Lens series. Abigail Disney, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Your new film is called Armor of Light. Could you describe it for us and tell us a little bit about how it came about? Sure. Um, the Armor of Light follows a very conservative, lifetime pro-life activist. Rob um, Schenck. Rob Schenck. He's a minister, and he has a change of heart. He starts to ask himself, is my pro-life ethic really consistent with the ethic of most evangelicals around guns and gun culture? So the film really follows his change of heart and crisis of conscience. Another major character in your film is uh, Lucy McBath. Tell me about her story. Lucy McBath uh, lost her son in a somewhat well-known stand-your-ground case in Florida, often referred to as a loud music case. He was in a car, he was playing loud music with his friends, and... He was shot by a guy who claimed he was standing his ground. Uh, it's a hard, he was 17, and he was a beautiful boy. And uh, when you listen to Lucy talk about it, it really it tears you apart. It really makes you ask some basic questions. The stand-your-ground laws, can you explain to me what they are? Right, um, because they're very misunderstood, the stand-your-ground laws. And they were sort of the heart of what brought me to this subject. Stand-your-ground laws expanded on your right to use fatal force in a violent conflict. You actually always had the right to d defend yourself with fatal force if you had no other choice. That's in the Magna Carta. You've had that right all along. Stand your ground laws did not give you that right. What they did was, among other things, relieve you of the obligation to retreat from the conflict if there were other options. To me, that says that the state has now communicated to its citizens that a bleeding corpse is not the worst outcome. <laughs> you know, that there are worse outcomes. That and 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 that to me is a massive shift in the in the cultural agreement we've all made as as citizens of this country. And I don't think we ever really discussed it. So it's the basis um, upon which I approached Rob and and most pro life people. Really, you don't have an obligation to retreat from a conflict. Wouldn't you rather do anything but take a life? How did you get them involved in making the film? Well, you know. 
Rob Shank, the minister, was obviously the one who was hard to get involved because naturally he had all kinds of suspicions about this liberal lady who came into his office one day mm-hmm. <laughs> and what my agenda was. Um, but I really did appeal to him in all honesty and from a point of conscience. And once he kind of realized I was genuine, he was happy to be involved. Lucy, you know, really wants to tell her story. She really wants people to know what happened to her son, Jordan Davis, because she knows that the world just can't stay the way it is. Is there a thesis that you have uh, behind the film? I mean, I suppose, although I really tried very hard not to have a thesis statement in the film, um, I want people to draw their own conclusions. That takes a lot of discipline. Believe me, I have plenty of opinions. But the thesis is really that if you really do value the sanctity of every single human life, as pro-life activists claim to do, then this gun culture, the sort of sexiness of the gun culture, should not sit well with you. So it's really about what it really means to be pro-life. Yes. You know, these are, again, uh, very hot-button issues. Yep. A woman's right to choose, Second Amendment rights. Did you have any fear in going forward to discuss these issues? Well, fear was my middle name for a while. Okay. <laughs> I was terrified. I was terrified just to meet Rob Schenk. I mean, because I had gone on Google and found, you know, horrifying and terrible things. And he had worked his whole life, you know, precisely against everything I believe. So I was convinced I was going to find, you know, pitchforks and horns, and, you know, and he's a lovely human being. And and what I've learned from this process, actually, is that there's nothing better than having a stereotype fall apart in front of your eyes. Because no one, no one is a cliche, really. And if you get to know them... It's amazing the way these things fall away. I almost get the sense that his views were evolving as you were filming him. Would you say that's so? Yeah, absolutely they were. They were very much evolving. He had it in the back of his mind when I approached him, but it wasn't on the front burner for him, and it wasn't on the front burner for anybody because why take this on? It's just a, It's like hitting a hornet's nest with a bat. But once I kind of challenged him on this question of whether or not he was really pro-life, he kind of couldn't. He couldn't lie back and say, I don't, I haven't thought about it. <laughs> you know, he couldn't hide from it. And, and what's happening with uh, Rob and Lucy today in, in terms of what they're doing? They, they do still occasionally connect around our film, although they both inhabit very different parts of the world. So um, there isn't a lot of reason to overlap unless they deliberately do so. But Rob um, is working more actively in this space than he ever has and really wants to make this his life. Um, Lucy works for Moms Demand Action, which is part of every town, which is part of the bigger umbrella organization of the gun violence prevention organizations that Bloomberg has rolled together. And so she travels the country and speaks, and she has oh, she has such an authentic voice. Well, for people who haven't had a chance to see it yet, it, it's uh, just such an excellent thing. It covers so many different issues. There's guns, there's uh, women's rights to choose, the stand your ground law. Do you think that you can actually change some minds by this film? I actually know we already have. I mean, that's kind of astonishing. That was my wish. I didn't want to change minds. I wanted to change hearts. That's a harder thing to do, but it actually is what makes the real difference. We just got a a letter from someone just the other day saying, um, I walked into a gun store. um, I gave them my papers. I came home. I saw your film, and then I decided not to buy the gun. Amazing. Amazing. So you are very gratified by the response you're getting so far. Incredibly. All I wanted was for people to open up their hearts and have an honest dialogue. Over the course of making this film, have you changed in any way, and what have you learned? 
I've learned so much. I, you know, I came to this in part because my family that I came from was very, very conservative. And I didn't um, become a conservative myself in my adult life, but, and it was kind of a painful thing. Um, so I, I, I kind of approached this from the perspective of I'd really like to make sense of my relationship to political conservatives and the nature and tenor of the fight that we're currently in. Because I would say to my mom, I'm not doing what I'm doing in spite of what you taught me. I do what I do because of the values you taught me. So can we not simply agree that we're basically both decent people and we have different ideas about what's asked of us in this life? And, and the other thing that's really changed for me, and this is kind of crazy, but, you know, I go to church on Sunday now. I would have never imagined that that would be one of the outcomes, but I found myself tiptoeing back to church. There's something in the film where there's a, the idea that a difference of opinion can so quickly become confrontational and that people can really become so hardened in their opinions that they're unable to hear other things. How do you address that? Well, that's precisely the spirit in which I made this film. It's like, I know, I see. You can't have a reasonable conversation. We can't even agree on what the facts are anymore. So you need to end run around the facts. And you need to go to the heart. And you need to talk about what are our basic values. And then, and then approach the facts from that place. But what you see in the film, in one of the scenes, is how quickly things can devolve when people have an, an opinion front-loaded that they then kind of try to, in a backwards way, justify, which is what you see a lot in the film. There are people who have the belief that they have about guns, and then they go looking in the Bible for the justification. And it's very difficult, particularly in the New Testament, to find a lot of justification for this gun position. And, you know, people need to approach it with a more uh, moral honesty. And, and try and just try to be more open. I think yeah. that's uh, Rob Shank seems amazingly able to uh, open himself up beyond his standard definition of what an evangelical should believe. Well, you know, actually, he doesn't open himself beyond what an evangelical should be. What he does is he he he's open to redefining that. Okay. Because he he recognizes that as, as a person who sort of yoked himself to a political sensibility, he's been pulled away from that center. And so that's what's so important about him is that he says, we need to go refine what it means to be an evangelical because it will pull us back in the right direction. Is he losing or gaining ground with uh, evangelicals? He has definitely lost people and supporters in some ways. He's certainly gotten hostility and threats and, you know, it, that happens. We were buckled down for that. But he has not lost nearly as much as he expected to. Mm -hmm. And he has gained more than he ever thought he would. The, the resistance has been so much less intense than we thought it would be. And that's thrilling. That's promising. Yeah. Yeah. Abby, have you had screenings at... Uh, evangelical churches? We've had lots of screenings in churches, and in particularly in evangelical churches, and meetings um, with evangelical pastors and groups, and the reception has been unbelievably positive. Um, what we get from a lot of people, generally mostly from women and young people, is I feel like you're finally saying this thing that I've had in the back of my head and haven't felt empowered to say. 
So I made the film partly on the intuition that there had to be people in that world who were being bullied into silence and who felt invite, needed to feel invited to speak. And it's been borne out everywhere we've gone. So the film is really giving them permission to expose what they yeah, really feel. Yeah, just one short story. We showed the film in a very conservative audience, and the husband got up, and he did his talking points, and he was very angry, and he was defensive, and, you know, I'm, I'm open to all of it. I want to hear what you've got to say. So when he was done, I said, thank you for your input. I'm just curious what your wife thinks. And, I, you know, it was just a, an, an impulse. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me, and she started to sob. And when she pulled herself together, she said, this thing is out of control. It has to stop. So that's one household. That's what someone's thinking. Now, you, there have been many screenings of the film. Uh, it, it's being broadcast now on PBS. And I know you have a relationship with uh, public media. What, what has that relationship been like? And it seems to me it's the culminating thing of after years of screenings and festivals, you finally have the broadcast. And what does that mean to you, the filmmaker? Oh, it, to me, this is so important. I, when I started working on the gun film, this the Armor of Light, I uh, called a gun rights activist who lived in rural Illinois, white, male, rural, 60-plus, lifetime Republican gun activist. And when I emailed him, he emailed me right back and said, oh, I know you. You're, you made women more in peace. I'm a huge fan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was not going to get that demographic from anybody else. You know, PPS is a pipeline into every living room in America, every living room in America, regardless of income or geography or anything else. And you have the potential with PBS to, to reach hearts, you know, that aren't preset to engage with you in a particular kind of way. And so what I really want is to genuinely reach Americans, um, not a subset. So you feel like the PBS audience does have an open mind that's that's willing to listen to the conflicting ideas of this film? I, I believe they do. I believe they do. And I believe that people who um, don't generally watch documentaries will turn on PBS and say, well, what's happening tonight on PBS? Well, not really knowing what's happening, and they'll try something. So my understanding is that you actually came to filmmaking relatively uh, recently, uh, yes. growing up in this famous family of yours. What led to your becoming a filmmaker? Um, well, I found that story in Liberia that became Pray the Devil Back to Hell. I, I mean, if it had been a log in the road, I would have tripped over it. It was just <laughs> lying there, and no one, no one wanted to pursue it. It was strange. And all the work I'd done around women's leadership and the importance of women's voices in the public square were all there in that one film, and I just didn't have a choice. It tells the story of how a group of Muslim and Christian women in Liberia were incredibly sick of the war, and um, they came together. They resolved their differences, and then they protested for peace. And their protest continued until, really, in fact, they, they were instrumental in ending that civil war. And as a result, uh, Lema Bowie ultimately won the Nobel Prize. She won the Nobel Prize. It's better than an Oscar. <laughs> but I was 46 when I started my first film, and uh, and I'm 56 now. So it's been a, a long um, not long. It's been a short, fast ride. It's a very steep learning curve. And I'd like to ask <laughs> you, do, do you feel your family background was a help or, or a hindrance in terms of your uh, oh, uh, establishing yourself? It was absolutely a help. My dad was a filmmaker. He was uh, Roy E. Disney. He was at Disney Company for 50 years. And uh, his father was Roy O. Disney, who co-founded the company with Walt. 
And he was... So it's Great Uncle Walt. Great Uncle. That's Well, we could call him Uncle Walt. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so he was very committed to t- using stories to change the world. He said, story, story, story. I don't care whatever else you think you can accomplish in a film. It's about story. And, you know, he was absolutely right. And when I first started Pray the Devil Back to Hell, I had it in my head. Okay, let's tell everybody the ch- what I think. <laughs> And thankfully, I had Ginny Redeker as a partner, and she was brilliant and talented. And I I realized, I kind of reheard what my dad had told me all those years ago, and it kind of came into play. And, you know, it's really, it's, it fits like a glove. Now, you have been a producer uh, in, in, of all these films that we've been discussing, but for this film, you also uh, put on the director's hat. Uh, was that for the first time you a director? I just it's the first to... time I've directed anything, and... Uh, you know, this film came like I pulled this film out of my heart. <laughs> you know, it really is, it's a cry of the conscience, honestly. And it's there's a lot in it that I had wanted to say, and I didn't feel like I, anybody else could say it for me. And and so what that's been like for you? What is the director uh, thing? Again, like? fear, my middle name. Okay. <laughs> it's terrifying. And it's terrifying when you're sitting in the edit room and you have some unsolvable question and all the faces kind of turn to you and you realize you're the one who's supposed to have the answer. Isn't that when you're supposed to go away for lunch and <laughs> yes. just come back? And... It's a terrifying moment that, that you know, on what is it, Shakespeare, uh, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. But it's also so deeply satisfying. I can't imagine not doing it again. What is the most challenging thing about about your work? Well, you know, when I started this, there were no other films like it that I could find or think of. And um, so we were trying to walk a line, and it was hard to keep ourselves on this line. You know, this line of, like, just trying to open the door to a conversation and not declare ourselves as on one side or another, to be respectful to everybody in the film, whether we agreed with them or not. That's hard to keep yourself honest about. And that was the hardest thing about making this film. And and it's hard to have confidence in what you're doing if you haven't seen someone do it before. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. It's kind of an uncharted territory in the way this film uh, comes across. Yeah, and we didn't know whether it would work or not or whether anybody would care. Filmmaking is really just a part of what you do. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the world of Abigail Disney beyond the <laughs> filmmaking world? It's a crazy world. Uh, I started an organization called Peace is Loud when Pray the Devil Back to Hell came out because there's a woman in the film who says peace is not a an event. It's a process. You know, it's something. And it got me thinking about, well, yeah, it's a verb. It's something you do, and it's not a quiet thing. You know, we use the word peace as a synonym for quiet, but you don't get peace by being quiet. Um, so we use that to elevate the voices of people, women in particular, who are really fighting hard for peace. Because for every Lema Bowie from Pray the Devil Back to Hell, I can show you another 20 women you never heard of mm-hmm. who are killing it out there. And um, so it's really important to me to raise those voices and use media to do it the best I can. So, Abby, if we want more information, where can we go? Well, um, there's peaceisloud.org, which tells us all about the activism that we're working on. Okay, peaceisloud.org. There's this wonderful quote at the beginning of the film, not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. Could you uh, speak more on that? Yeah, well, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And for those of you who don't know who he was, he was a pastor in Germany um, who sort of came of age as Hitler was coming to power in Germany. And he really was this clarion voice in Germany 
to beg the German church not to go along. Not, not even, they didn't just go along. They aided and abetted in every way they could. And he was his voice of conscience in the church. And, you know, he came to the United States. He, he was able to get out of the country. He went back in 1942 because he felt he needed to be there as a voice of conscience in Germany in 1942. And, of course, he was arrested um, and eventually assassinated by the Germans. And he's he's kind of... Evangelicals are very, very interested in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'd never heard of him before I met Rob Schenk. And um, so I started looking into him and reading about him. He's a really compelling figure. And potentially, you know, he's really a uniting figure for Christians on both sides of the political divide because he really speaks both their languages. I put that quote in there because um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a hero of Rob Shanks. And I knew that Rob would sit through a lot of screenings. (laughs) And I knew that he would lose heart. And I knew that it would be hard for him to stay the course. It would be terrifying. And I just added that there to sort of help him touch base with who he is and why he's on this planet once every time he sees a film. And I I go back to that quote all the time because not to speak is to speak. You can't just simply sit on the sidelines. There are no sidelines. So what is uh, up next uh, for you? Well, I'm I'm going to follow this film as far as I can follow it because I I'm feeling us moving this thing, which is a dream for every filmmaker to actually move a needle. (laughs) So I don't want to run from this any quicker Mm -hmm. than I have to. But I'm really interested in the the question of moral injury, which is kind of a new question that we're struggling with as men come home from war, men and women. And uh, I'm hoping the next project can sort of dig into that. Well, thank you so much for being here. The film is called Armor of Light, uh, directed by our guest, Abigail Disney. It's going to be broadcast on PBS on May 10th, 10th uh, as part of the Independent Lens series. And I'm sure there's a web address uh, where we can find out more. Do you happen to know what so that is? Coincidentally, we have a website. And um, yes, we're on Twitter and Facebook. It's armoroflightfilm.com. And do come and sign up. And there's a, a pastor page also called Sword of the Spirit. And if you're a pastor and you're interested in getting involved or you want to hear and read some of our sample sermons and devotionals written by pastors across the country, all of whom are pastors at very conservative places, mm-hmm. um, come see. So I understand there's a town hall uh Uh, broadcast involved with this also? Yes, it's a town hall. It's going to be coming from Florida, and we'll have pastors and we'll have Christians. Rob and Lucy will both be there. We'll have um, an interfaith panel of people talking from a range of views about these, you know, very deep issues of the conscience. Abby Disney, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Join us again soon for a follow-up when we'll bring you a panel discussion featuring Abigail Disney, Rob Shank, and Lucy McBath with more about the Armor of Light. Email your questions and comments to us at upnext at wnet.org. And of course, become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is presented by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart. Thank you.